Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Helen. Hello, I'm John. And this is a special US election preview version of the New Statesman podcast. Um, This is a a high technology uh, one, so bear with us if there are some snafus as we go along, because John, where are you now? I am currently uh, just outside a little town called Pomeroy, which is in Ohio, uh, just across the Ohio River from West Virginia. So it's a a bustling metropolis, as I'm sure you can imagine. But it's, it's lovely. It's very nice and autumnal out there. That's very exciting because I've been watching season two of The West Wing, as is my election year. Um, There's no sort of, election yeah. in season two. No, but I always watch The West Wing in uh, in election years. It's my little tradition. And they've just been shot by people from West Virginia White Pride. So do... Do yeah. don't don't go to any diners that have got swastikas outside them is what I'm saying. I found out an amazing thing about West Virginia last night. There is there are people in West Virginia who fly the Confederate flag, but West Virginia only exists because it broke away from Virginia because it was the bit that wanted to stay with the Union. So <laughs> so the most Confederate state now is one that was never even in the Confederacy. Isn't isn't that a beautiful story? That is a beautiful story. Also, whenever I hear the word confederacy, I always hear it in the voice of Cartman from that amazing episode of South Park, you know, when they go and march on um, Washington with the margarita mixers. Which is which is basically US politics right now. So Yeah, it is. And then they like don't they cut the head off a chicken and then when it like wanders round, whatever it dies in is that's the thing that they get. That's kind of how I feel a bit like the about the election now. They might as well just do that at this point. I haven't seen this episode, but I am looking forward to the chicken decapitation on Wednesday morning. So It's called Margaritaville, look it up. But anyway, he calls it the Confederacy because he's Cartman. So um that's how I hear it in my head. Um tell us about so you've been on a road trip. Tell us about your road trip in, in the US. We have, yeah. We've we've been all over the place. We kind of started off by going up into to Boston and New England, and then we crossed the exciting states of Pennsylvania and Ohio, which are places that people only tend to get excited about in election years. Um, and we stopped in uh, a place called Scranton, which is mm-hmm. a, a former mining town in Pennsylvania, which was where Joe Biden was born and where Hillary Clinton's dad is buried, um, which is traditionally very democratic, but which might go for Trump this year. It's that kind of blue collar post-industrial place that everyone's kind of watching quite nervously. Um, and we, we... So tell me more about what the atmosphere is like in Philadelphia, because uh, from exhaustive playing with the upshots um, election predictor, right? You know, if Clinton wins Philadelphia and Florida, then there's really no sorry. sorry, I mean Pennsylvania and Florida, then there's really no way back for for Trump. 
Um, so everybody is now looking quite nervously towards, you know, it was always, you know, Iowa and Ohio as swing states, but actually this year really um, Pennsylvania has emerged as, as the most interesting, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I, it's difficult to answer the what's the atmosphere like question, because I think part of the problem that the US has at the moment is that there are places where, you know, of course they think Trump is going to win because everyone they know is voting for Trump. And like they, 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 you know, if you live in Scranton and you watch Fox News, then you don't necessarily realize quite how much more diverse the US electorate has become over the last 20, 30 years. Um, so and, and there are places and, you know, there are certain major cities where literally no one is voting for Trump. So it's, it's very it's very divided in that sense, I think. Um, but yeah, I think Pennsylvania will be an interesting one to watch because the polls show it should stay with Clinton. It's been democratic since 1988 in presidential elections. But it is one of those states that is, it's a swing state because it's very, very finely balanced between two big cities in, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, which are very diverse and very democratic. And this whole swathe of kind of rural or post-industrial um, space in between where everyone's incredibly likely to vote Republican. So it can go either way, depending on, on the turnout. Um, and and the, the votes that Trump seems to be winning from the, the traditional Democratic coalition are the kind of white blue collar votes in places like Scranton. Uh, so we might see uh, Clinton under pressure in Pennsylvania in, and possibly also in, in Michigan, where it's a similar story. And this is probably why Ohio is almost certain to go for Trump, I think. It's normally a swing mm. state, but this year it looks it, – I, I would be pretty confident that one's going to vote, vote Republican. Um, but on the flip side, because uh, Clinton has been very good at – well, actually, no, it's not that Clinton's been very good at motivating the, the minority voters to, to vote. Trump has been very good at motivating minority voters to vote against him. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to pick up with you is that we've been seeing pictures over here of huge queues in places like Nevada for early voting, um, an incredibly high turnout of, of Hispanic voters. Um, is that something that the US media are picking up on as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so the, people are now saying in a kind of, you know, fate tempting kind of way that it's almost impossible to see Trump winning Nevada at this point just because turnout in Clark County, which is Las Vegas, and therefore where most of Nevada lives, was so high and so Hispanic. Um, and the assumption is that most of those guys are going to be pretty angry about the whole let's build a wall thing. Uh, so, so yeah, that is going to be a factor also in Florida and in North Carolina. And um, even Georgia, is it's not implausible, could actually go, go for Clinton this year. Uh, but on the other side, she is going to be under pressure in, in the sort of post-industrial Midwest, which has traditionally been a democratic heartland, but where Trump has been playing surprisingly well because of the message about how, you know, global trade has hurt the US economy and so on. Uh, so it's, it's it, it might be quite an, an odd map for the, the map nerds out there. Well, and if anyone knows about map nerds, it is I, surely you. I know, you have I know. made them your people. I know what the people want. What, what do you want from me? And maps is, is what they want. They um, want. I think it's been an interesting election because actually uh, people have been very reluctant to make grand sweeping predictions. Right. And I, I mean, I'm certainly in the place of now, if I was asked to put my hand on my heart, I think that Clinton is going to win. But it's not something that I'm going to be at all bullish about because I won't equally well. I will not be shocked to my core if Trump wins. Right. Yeah. No, I'm kind of. I'm not. 
I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know whether or not people actually, I mean, people spent a lot of time berating journalists for, as they saw it, calling Jeremy Corbyn's election wrong, calling Brexit wrong. Um, and actually, everyone I feel on both sides of the Atlantic has been extremely cautious about um, about what the polls have said and what conclusions we can draw from them in this election. There is just a huge amount of uncertainty about what the electorate is going to look like, because, I mean, polling is all dependent on assumptions about who will actually turn out to vote. And in this year's presidential election, we've got Trump talking about motivating white voters who don't normally turn out mm. to, to so therefore might not show up in polls and there's not been there haven't been signs of a massive increase in registrations but i ha i do keep hearing about individual white voters who who don't normally vote because the republicans are too left-wing and nabby pandy for them but but are feeling pretty motivated by trump um but on the flip side there's the massive increase in hispanic turnout looks like it's happening it's not clear on what the African-American turnout is going to be like, whether the whether um, the, the black vote is going to be as motivated to turn out for Clinton as it was for Obama. So and and, the, and there's unusually strong uh, a third party candidates in, in the libertarian Gary Johnson and also this guy Evan McMullen, who could plausibly win Utah. So between I'm all enjoying those things, Evan McMullen. a huge amount of uncertainty about what the result is going to who, who the electorate is going to be and therefore what the final result will be. So, you know. Good luck, Nate. Evan. Silver. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about Nate Silver. Actually, someone sent me this as a, a "You Ask Us" for the podcast, but I think it's probably worth talking about in this context, which is: is more polling good? Uh, I mean, I think there's been very good. I mean, we hashed through some of these arguments after last May's election. I think um, Zainab Tufeki in the New York Times has kind of uh, uh, written about this as well. Is that? Uh, and I and I find it very seductive thesis that actually more polling has just led to exactly what the campaign coverage did not need which is more focus on the horse race right more and actually just more polls equals more noise and they and it's very easy to report oh trump up one here trump down through here you know whatever clinton up three here and you actually crowd out substantive policy issues yeah we've not really heard so much about the substantive policy issues this year have we i mean i have I, I, I've been following this stuff reasonably closely and I have very little idea of what, what, the, what Clinton's major policies actually are. And that, you know, to an extent, that reflects a, a failing on my part. I haven't gone out and found out. But also, they just haven't been uh, widely reported in the way that the horse race stuff or the email server or, you know, the, that exciting uh, sexual abuse tape that Donald Trump uh, came out with um, all those things have got so much attention that I have literally no idea what Hillary Clinton's healthcare plan is. Um, and yeah, I think polling is is partly to blame for that. I think also there's a question over how how useful this information actually is, because there is a theory that one of the reasons polling fluctuates is not because people change their minds, but because if your candidate is having a bad week, you will feel less inclined to talk to a pollster. So yeah, I thought that was a very interesting thing that if basically the couple of days after the, like you say, the Trump tape comes out and he's talking about grabbing people by the pussy, then if you're a Trump supporter, you kind of just don't, you don't respond in that. Like it doesn't change how you vote. And I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about this election has been seeing the resilience of Trump support, not just under a sustained attack by left wing and liberals, right, but, but from his own party, you know. Um, the lack of kind of funding and interest from the GOP, the kind of number of grandees like John McCain saying that they'll write in someone else's name. 
um, you know, Mitt Romney very, being very strongly against him. We, we'd always got used to this idea that, you know, the parties were just brands. And actually, as a brand, you know, as one of these main parties, you would just get a certain percentage of the vote. But that's sort of been complicated by Trump. He's sort of got the the, the Republican brand, but also he's, you know, he's also calling them, he's all calling them pussies really as well. Yeah. And if he wins, it will be by turning out people who don't actually think of themselves as Republicans. I mean, we've, we've met a few people who have told us, oh, well, normally I'm a Democrat, but I do really like Trump, which is kind of terrifying. But but what, what when the people you... But what, so the people you've talked to who support Trump, what what's the what are the things that kind of keep they keep saying? I think the 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 biggest recurring pattern is just this sense that something has gone terribly wrong in the U.S. economy and that they're at the sharp end of it. It's like I mean, if you go, it, it, we've been through the Rust Belt, which is is basically in the north of England, only you know ten times the size. You've got all these beautiful, absolutely stunning, some of them cities from, from built 100 years ago during the Gilded Age, where you can see this was once a really important place, and now there's just nothing here. It's just Bradford over and over again. Um, because, because you know, all these places, to some extent, were dependent on, on the car industry in Detroit, I think, and that's gone. So suddenly all the supply chain in places like Akron and Toledo and, and Youngstown is not there either. Um so it's it's the traditionally unionized blue collar workers in places like that that think well people keep saying the economy is doing really well so why don't we have jobs anymore why have i gone from like 34 dollars an hour doing skilled labor to eight dollars an hour working by a petrol station or something and i think that's where some of the white nativism comes in right is the feeling that actually there are immigrant populations who are doing better um, a sort of sense that they've somehow skipped the line, you know, that they they're getting special federal assistance or, you know, they're getting affirmative action programs. And actually, these people feel like a minority themselves, but one that is, you know, is left out of any kind of official assistance programs. Yeah, I think that's definitely in there. Um, are we going to talk about the parallels with Brexit? Because they do kind of scream at you, I think. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think they're fascinating, and I think it's been really nice for British journalists because we are a ridiculously U.S.-obsessed political class. For I think no more complicated reason than it's a lot easier to read the U.S. press because it's in English than it is to read, you know, Desite or whatever or Le Monde. Um, but, but this and, time, and the West you know, everybody... like we're West Wing addicts. As well. <laughs> Let's not pretend that is in fact. And, 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 and yeah, and scandal. Um, but um, but I think it's been it's been interesting to see how much Brexit has, has preyed on the minds of U.S. commentators that I've been reading as a kind of example of people voting in a way that doesn't make sense in purely economic terms, um, but obviously makes sense to them in, in cultural or identity terms. And also, again, like you say, that just that fundamental thing of not knowing who your electorate is you know we saw a really high turnout much higher than a general election for the eu referendum and that did mean that people who who weren't normally engaged with the political process who probably weren't being factored into models you know they they affected the result yeah i mean it, it people have been asking us about brexit which is not a, you know not people you'd expect to know about what's going on in uk politics which I don't think is a, a great sign for how the country is currently seen by the world. Um, but it's probably because Donald Trump has been repeatedly pointing to these parallels. And I think there are definitely, I mean, the parallel works in two levels. Firstly, the the makeup of the Trump electorate looks kind of quite like the, the makeup of the, the Leave vote. It's you know old people and angry uh, working class people have been screwed over by globalisation. 
and but also ideological right wingers and racists. But also a big sector of people who haven't got degrees, right? I think yeah, that's a, a once again that's a yeah. a huge predictor of, of Trump support is not having a degree, which, as you say, links into the idea about people who don't feel that they have the skills to succeed in a in a you know in a very high tech economy and one that is highly globalized. If you're a, a manual worker, then those jobs are exactly the ones that have been eroded. I mean, yeah, it feels like globalization has been brilliant for the vast majority of the world's population but the people who lose out from it are disproportionately concentrated in in you know developed western countries where they make up probably about 30 40 percent of the population um and that's enough to cause this kind of real outcry so and i think to me it also means that we're going to have to start talking oh, there's a great piece in the new york times about this being a crisis specifically of white identity and the difference between kind of assigned identities and achieved identities and saying that you know for most whatever you want to call them elites or liberals or whatever you know it's actually about achieved identity it's about what you've kind of done and what you know where you know what your aspirations are and that kind of stuff but we've probably ignored you know the the fundamental things about people feel about themselves that they they feel a sense of pride and if you haven't got a kind of job that people ooh and are ah and say how amazing it is and how lucky you are to have it then actually what are the other things that give you kind of pride in your identity and that might be it might be a religion um i think that's been a really interesting force in this election or it might be an ethnicity you know you're used to being in the kind of dominant group and and we don't like to really talk about that which brings me to mormons can we talk about mormons love a mormon <laughs> well, the, but as you say, um, Evan McMullen in Utah is polling really well. And Mormons, despite having many of the economic problems of other white Trump voters, are not particularly Trumpy. Yeah, I kind of feel like I missed the backstory to this. I mean, I, I, I think there was probably just a point where Trump made a whole load of rude comments or jokes at the expense of Mormons. and They've not really forgiven him. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just an electorate that hates him personally. So, but is very conservative. So, it's probably going to vote for this. This this is the Republican apparatchik. This sort of Republican guy, Evan McMullen, who's standing as an independent. Um, but I think the other thing might be that I think some of the Mormons might actually be religious in the sense that one of the fascinating things is the religious right in America and the way that it's talked for so long about you know, how immoral Bill Clinton was. Well, they've got a candidate this time who's been married multiple times. He's had multiple affairs. You know, he's actually, he flip-flopped hugely on uh, on abortion and was kind of in favour of it and then said, no, you know, women should be punished for having an abortion. Um, one of the things that I think I feel like I've learned is that that constituency didn't, wasn't really as attached to its religious principles as it said it was, whereas I feel that perhaps... You know, Mormons and represented by leaders like Romney, you know, are, do actually genuinely have a kind of moral code that overrides them just wanting someone who cuts taxes. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. They've definitely sort of separated themselves off from from the the mainstream of the U.S. religious right, um, and and may vote in a different direction. So yeah, no, that's that'll be interesting to watch on the night. But I mean, I mean, this, Utah is sadly going to be a a sideshow because of the, the way the US electorate works is like the key thing is not just to get the most electoral college votes it's to get to 270 or it goes to Congress so it is it, it is plausible it's not likely but it is plausible that we get uh, a result in which Evan McMullen gets Utah which is six votes and neither of the other two get to 270 and Congress gets to pick the next president which will be that'll be fun that'll be hilarious it, hilariously awful 
Yeah. I mean, you know, they can't even sign off a Supreme Court nominee, um, you know, that's been nominated by Barack Obama. I just, I mean, what a bun, what a total bun fight that will be. Yeah, um, and it has happened any... before in history. Yeah, this happened in uh, one of my favourite facts about US history is it took them after the revolution in which they threw out the monarchy. It the number of years before they picked a president who was the son of a previous president was forty eight. Um, when they when they picked John Quincy Adams and and that was Congress. That wasn't John Quincy Adams did not win the eighteen twenty four election. He just happened to come close enough, and no one got a majority in Congress. Said, "Hey, we'll go that we'll go for that guy. We liked his dad." So. Um, what other kind of stuff have you noticed from being on the ground? Um, oh, I, I, I feel like I should have more interest. Oh, no, actually, that's a good one. Um, Republicans have been very nice to us. Like, but Republicans are are nice. I mean, this is the same thing as, as you know, most Brexit voters are really lovely, right? I think you kind of, because oh, yeah. the rhetoric can be so overblown, you sort of forget that most normal people don't feel that strongly and don't regard anyone they disagree with as a traitor. But, but I mean, they kind of do. That's that's the that's the terrifying thing. It's like, I mean, we spoke to some Republicans in, in, in Pennsylvania who were, uh, who were genuinely lovely people. They were so delighted we'd come to see them. They didn't try and tell us we were part of the mainstream media conspiracy or anything. They kind of they gave us tea and cake and so on. Um, but who genuinely believe that if Clinton wins, it can only be because the system is rigged and they will need to march on Washington and foment a revolution. And that Hillary Clinton is corrupt and has taken loads of money from, from... She's extorted money from foreign governments and possibly had some people killed. Um, so they are exactly as mad as they are portrayed in some of the more hysterical commentary. It's just they're also, on a personal level, really, really nice people. And that's kind of a difficult contradiction to get your head around when you're sat there having a lovely sort of homemade cake with someone who is telling you that, that Barack Obama is, is not really the president and they're going to start a, an armed revolution next week. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I think there was some really interesting polling that came out about the number of... Um the sharp decline in the last couple of decades in the number of people who say, you know, I, I would be comfortable with and happy to kind of, you know, be ruled by the, you know, the, the candidate from the opposing side. And that's now a, an incredibly low level. And I think that's always the kind of flip side, isn't it? If you remember is I will feel an enormous sense of um, anger and despair if Donald Trump wins. Well, that's, that is mirrored by an enormous sense of anger and despair that the other side will feel if, if Clinton wins. Yeah, I think the, the the media, or not not the media as in the individuals like us, but the way the whole industry has gone, um, plays a part in this because it is now between you know you can have a Facebook uh, friendship group where everyone agrees with you, and you can watch Fox News or MSNBC. Uh, um, um, you, you never have to deal with the fact that a significant minority of the population has very very different views to yours so it, therefore when your side loses it can come as a genuine shock because it's like well how, how is it possible that, that Clinton mm. won because I don't know anyone who's voting for Clinton I, I think that's a problem and I think the other thing is that people are kind of gradually starting to write about is the way that Trump was a great ratings winner in a declining industry an industry plagued by um, 
you know, d- d- precipitous drops in print advertising and then small rises in digital advertising. But with most of that new money going to, to Facebook and Google, you know, actually one of the things that was kind of ratings Viagra was getting Trump on in the early days of his um, run for the GOP nomination and kind of getting him to say wacky things that everyone was incredibly outraged about. You know, that was just that was sort of just exciting. Um, and therefore they asked to, to do it more and more. And he kind of he just kept getting invited back on stuff when he was still a joke candidate. So he wasn't at that point getting any proper scrutiny. No one was asking him questions about, you know, what's your actually what's your tax plan or what's your you know, what's your plan for the Middle East? They were just letting him kind of rant and rave about random stuff about Mexicans or whatever. Yeah, for a while, the Huffington Post actually reported him in its entertainment section rather than its politics section, which which has obviously worked out very well and stopped his rise. So well done I, there. I think that will go down as one of the great miscalculations of, of, of political journalism, maybe ever. I mean, now Huffington Post has now started running editor's notes saying, by the way, we think he's a quasi-fascist demagogue, you know, and, a, <laughs> and we think he said, you know, sexist and racist things. But the trouble is you can't really pivot from lol you know who's this clown to oh this guy could actually be like the next hitler you know guys because people just don't again to come back to brexit people just don't believe it if you go well i could probably see myself voting to leave the eu as david cameron said and then six weeks later you're going this will be the end of the world and it will cost you five grand because people just don't don't believe you yeah so we've we've screwed that one up haven't we so well it's done, the, the media. On that one. Um, tell me, what are you going to be doing on uh, election night? We are going to go to um, DC because we've got, uh, we've got friends there. And we were there. Uh, the, the friend I'm traveling with and I did this trip eight years ago for, for the uh, Obama-McCain election. Um, and that night when, when the result was announced, DC, which is obviously a very African-American city, sort of just erupted into a spontaneous street party. I'm kind of interested to see what it looks like this time round, regardless of the result, because I don't think it's going to be quite the same either way. But it will be. No, I think if it's if it's Trump, it will be kind of ululation and rending of garments. And if it's Clinton, it will probably be overwhelming relief mixed with just profound tiredness. Right. At, at, at the gridlock that's going to follow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be an all night party either way. But uh it, yeah, so we're going to be in a, there, and I will probably be um, contributing to the the New Statesman's exciting live blog from the ground. So. Well, that's true. I should do a bit of housekeeping at the end before I let you go, which is just to say that Stephen Bush will be manning the live blog from 11:30 um, p.m. Uh, our time. Uh, we expect to start getting polls closing at um, half past midnight and one o'clock. We're hoping to have a declaration based on last time. There was a declaration about what 5 a.m. Um, but as you as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, it really depends if we if we know Florida and Pennsylvania relatively early, then we could have an answer a, a bit earlier than that. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that we should watch out for on election night? Any small things you think uh, a British audience should look out for? I would keep an eye on um, Michigan because it's one of those states that no one's paying any attention to because it's so safely democratic. And then suddenly in the last few days. The Clinton campaign has gone into a bit of a panic about the possibility of losing it. Um, and if, if Michigan goes to Trump, then something really could be afoot. Uh, on the other side, I also keep an eye on uh, North Carolina and Georgia, because if Clinton's winning those, especially Georgia, then Trump has got very little chance. So, Thank you very much, John Ellis, for joining us from um, West Virginia. Um, uh, have, a, have a fun election night. You too. Thank you, Helen. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Music